Hello, and welcome to episode five of The Current, a show that unpacks the energetic current that is flowing through each and every one of us. And that energetic current changes, it evolves, and it shifts hour by hour, week by week. I'm your host, Nadia Last, and I show up here with a new episode every two weeks, every new and full moon, just unpacking all of the things that we might be all feeling, but may not be as comfortable talking about. And today's episode is no exception. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about one of the last great remaining stigmas and taboos in today's society. We're going to be talking about grief. And grief as an emotion is a very normal part of the spectrum of the human experience. And yet in today's society, there is actually very little space for us to grieve properly and to process the things in which we are grieving and mourning. And I think that today's episode comes at such a beautiful time because 2020 of all years, grief is the emotion that connects all of us. It's something that we've all felt this year. We are grieving and mourning the year that we thought that we would have. We are grieving and mourning especially around this holiday season, all of the traditions and ways that we usually get together with loved ones that looks very different this year. We are grieving the jobs lost. We are grieving the locations moved. We are grieving the relationships that have come to a close. We are grieving the human lives that were lost through this virus and also the many more lives that were affected forevermore from this pandemic. And as grief is this underlying emotion of 2020, there is no better time than the full moon, the last and 13th full moon of 2020, to finally process and really release all of this grief that has been pent up throughout the year. And I would be remiss not to mention that this full moon is in Cancer and the energy of Cancer is embodied and gratuitous emotion. It's feeling, it's full-fledged feeling. And there is no better time than right now for us to finally take off the shelf the things that we've been sort of suppressing or hiding away or been too uncomfortable to deal with and bring them into light so we can finally process them and let go and release as we head into 2021. This is a very special episode for me. This is actually my very first interview. And it is such a joy and a privilege to introduce the only voice that you all have heard other than my own. I am interviewing my dear, dear friend, Rachel Richbloom, who I met a few years back while we were working at our respective corporate jobs. We were both working at the same company. And Rachel is a powerhouse. She has since gone on to lead the team of comms and PR at this major technology company. However, Rachel also has dealt with substantial grief in her personal life, and I've seen her deal with this tremendous loss in ways where we're all dealing with grief this year. She's just so many paces ahead of us. I'm so honored that you get to hear Rachel's story in her own words. At a very high level, Rachel lost both of her parents within 14 months of each other to the same form of brain cancer. It's an unfathomable, truly unbelievable story. And she has so much wisdom that she's gained from these experiences that were of no choice of her own, but she's created so much significance and meaning from them. And two years on the day of the anniversary of her dad's death, she actually felt very called to create a platform 
and she started an Instagram called at that good grief. And the platform has since grown to tens of thousands of followers. And it's this respite, this place of refuge on the internet where people can go and feel less alone, whether you're dealing with the loss of a parent, the loss of a partner, infertility loss, grief of something that you thought would happen, but it didn't end up happening that way. Whatever it is that you're mourning and grieving, Rachel has created this place of solace for so many where you can feel less alone. And she has this unique way of building community in a way where she has balanced the darkness and the light. And grief is such a serious and heavy emotion, but she's created such an accessible way in. And one of the most beautiful takeaways that I had from this conversation is that we shy away from grief because it can feel so uncomfortable. And yet grief is just love with nowhere to go. And so with that, I am so excited to introduce this conversation. One small caveat is that Rachel and I did some logistical gymnastics and actually simultaneously recorded this podcast episode while she was hosting an Instagram live. So we allowed people to ask questions and you'll you'll hear from the audience who was present for that conversation. And if you are more of a video person, feel free to go to Rachel's platform at That Good Grief and you can watch our interview that was recorded live. All right, buckle up. Here we go. How do we feel? Does this work? I think it works. Are we good on sound? Let's take it. Oh my God. Okay, so is this your first live, Rachel? It's on the first one page. that I posted. I've joined one once, but Hell it was yes. like a year ago. So this is new territory for me. And I have new devices that we're using, <laughs> a little microphone setup that Nadia insisted I get. So we're really There's <laughs> a lot happening. So long. <laughs> And I want to acknowledge for everyone that has been following Rachel and this beautiful platform that she's created for years. It's been, you know, two and a half years, if not a little bit longer. How long has it been, Rachel? Two and a half. Yeah. August 2018 is when I started. Incredible. So you've been curating all of this content. You've been writing. You've been the woman behind the magic. And very few of you have actually seen her face and and really (laughs) heard her story as she tells it. And that's really the intention of today's conversation is to bring a little bit of love and light during the holiday season, which is so riddled with so many different emotions. It's grief, it's sadness, it's also elation and community. It's so many things that I feel like really hearing Rachel's voice today and her story is going to be bring hopefully a lot of solace to you all. It won't solve the grief that you're feeling, but it will help you feel less alone. And that's really our intention with this. And we have so many different contraptions happening. I have this little like (laughs) speaker on the side because we're also recording an episode for my podcast. We want this message to reach as many people as we can today. And for everyone that's joining live, you are here for a reason. Like you're here literally live with us because we're going to reserve time at the end of this conversation for you to ask Rachel the deep questions that you have, the real, real, like no quotes, no posts, like how do you actually (laughs) feel? And I think that throughout this conversation, as questions come up, post them in this chat and we'll revisit a lot of these questions near the end of our conversation. Yeah. And the one thing that I want to say just from the outset, right, is this is a year like 
an unprecedented year, as we've heard one too many times this year. Um, And I think that for the sake of the conversation, right, we're defining grief as broadly as it can mean. Of course, for me, you know, the way I relate to grief is through the deaths of my parents, which we can get into. But um, in a year like this year, right, we're grieving what we wanted to have happen, what we thought we were going to have for ourselves, the experiences that we thought we were going to have access to. And it can be as simple as, you know, a job that you were hoping to get or an opportunity you were hoping to close in on. But all of that is still, you know, grief, love with nowhere to go. Yes. I would love you to unpack this concept because this truly like flipped my understanding of grief on its head. Grief can be such a heavy emotion that we don't feel comfortable feeling. There's not a lot of room in our society today to be overwhelmed with grief. And I think that's so much of what people find on your, on your page is permission to feel it all. And can you unpack for us like this idea that grief is truly just love? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was a game changer for me completely when I heard grief is love with nowhere to go, right? That is incredibly powerful to think about. It's the idea that there's all this energy, right? Energy that can be neither destroyed nor created. It's just floating around in the world. And normally, you know, like for me, it was, I was normally putting that all on my mom in the text messages I sent her every day or the phone calls I made and to my dad. And when I had conversations with him and when someone dies, It's not like I don't have that love anymore, that energy that's still within me. But what happens is that that feeling of pent upness, which can come through as anger, it can come through as fear, it can come through as sadness, I think all are collectively defined as grief. I think for everybody who doesn't know your story, we should probably just start at the beginning because likely a lot of people watching have their own stories, but I'd like to hear through your words, what happened in your life? Yeah, so I would say um, it's been a wild ride the last couple of years because I feel very fortunate in that I had a pretty, you know, stable, non-traumatic, as as far as non-trauma in children go, um, childhood and upbringing. When I was 25, my dad got diagnosed with brain cancer. He passed away 10 months later. And then a year after that, my mom got diagnosed with the same form of terminal brain cancer and died seven weeks later, which was two days after my 28th birthday. What a Saturn return. That's the, I was going to say, that's the short version. (laughs) Right. So in that moment, your life, I mean, in those moments, but it was 14 months between when your dad passed away and your mom passed away from the exact same type of brain cancer. Mm -hmm. Like I've never heard of a story like that. And I know you said that since starting this platform, you've heard of maybe a handful of other people who have eerily similar stories, but it's pretty unfathomable. Like your brain cannot comprehend that. So talk me through you know, like your brain being like, what? I will, I will tell you that my, one of my recurring dreams on the theme of Nadia's latest episode of her podcast was about dreams. So everyone should go listen to that. And I do a little plug there, but my recurring dream is that my mom didn't actually die, but we like, everything happened so quickly that, you know, in the scheme of things, seven weeks of someone being sick and passing away is essentially like them dropping dead when you're looking at, you know, the scheme of the world um, and a lifetime on earth. Um, And, you know, not having had a substantial conversation with her from the time she was diagnosed till when she passed away because it was impacting her brain. I think that I, I haven't processed it. I'm processing it. I think it's a pro like it's a process. I think I had maybe just started to unpack what it meant for to have my dad die. And then my mom got sick. I was the primary caretaker and then she died very quickly after that. Um, and so I think that it's, it's an ongoing battle that you're playing between your brain and your heart. I always say that the, the pain I feel is the magnitude of understanding that this is forever, but logically and psychologically, it's really hard to wrap your head around what that is. So, you know, the amount of pain I feel I know in my heart is like, because I know 
that this is not going to change. But if you were to ask me intellectually, I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know. Can't add it up for the life of me. And to your point, I certainly thought what I had been through was unique and it it certainly still is in every relationship as individual, but grief is universal. And I've also found an astounding number of people, even if it's five people who have similar experiences to me, like that seems like a lot for how, you know, out there my experience was, but ultimately we're all connected together by this community of grief. I find it so fascinating that during your waking life, you're like, yep, this is a reality. Like, you know, I've, intellectualized it, I've conceptualized mm-hmm. it, but then when you dream, you're almost brought back into your body and your body's like, <laughs> like she's still here somewhere. Like how have those dreams been for you? And have you gone through like cycles where you've dreamt more about your parents and it's like been so visceral? Yeah, it's definitely been different. It comes in waves. There'll be waves of time where I don't dream about them at all. And you almost start to seek that out and like want it because it's comforting in a lot of ways. But the recurring kind of nightmare of like, oh, my mom's not really dead. We've all just been like forgetting to like pay attention to her for a year and a half. Some combination, like something like that. It's it's really um, disorienting. It's again, I think it's just a testament to the fact that I'm still working through processing the idea that she's dead, let alone what that means in the long term. Right. Um, And there's part of your subconscious that's like, she's out there somewhere. Like I could still maybe send a text and- Well, it's just not possible, right? Like it just doesn't make sense. So she must be somewhere. I'm just not looking hard enough. And let's talk about, I feel like the theme throughout this and what you bring to so many people in your community, Rachel, is like debunking myths almost or stereotypes about grief. And one really prominent stereotype is like time heals all wounds. (laughs) And I'd like to talk about that for you because you're, you know, like it's been two and a half years, as we said, since you started this platform. And that was about a year, two years after your dad passed away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was so on the two year anniversary. Some time, but like time is not linear. So like talk me through what's happened since then. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the one thing I'll say is one of the best pieces of advice I got right after my dad died was grief is nonlinear. So don't expect it to be good one day, bad the next day, and then increasingly better from there, right? That's just not how it works. Grief is like waves. It kind of keeps crashing and ebbing and flowing. And I don't say that to scare people who are in the early days of their journey, but I'm also not here to tell you that it's going to go away and that there's healing to be found on the other side. I think that there is healing if there's parts of the relationship that you need to heal within it. But I think the idea of grief and like coming out on the other side, like it's something you're going to continue to carry with you. It becomes maybe a little more compact, maybe a little bit easier to carry around, maybe a little more predictable and when it's going to have it's like outbursts, but, but it's all still there. And I mean, I personally, like I wouldn't want it any other way. The idea that I would, you know, be 50 years from now and be like, "Mm, I'm good that my mom and dad are like out of here. Like that, that's not the relationship I had. And I think I'll be missing them, you know, in a very different way than the way I miss them today. It's, both because time will have passed and also the person that I am and how I'm relating to them will have changed too. But, you know, it it stays with you. And I don't, I don't think the goal is healing. And it's very permission giving in that you're not expecting like, oh, I'm going to get over this. It's like, no, it evolves and it grows and it changes. But I love this concept of like, your grief is your love for them. So 50 years from now, honoring the relationship that you had with them, you're going to still grieve them because they're not here and you wish that they were here and they were such a big piece of your life. I kind of want to talk about how, I mean, you had this surreal experience of losing both parents so close together, 14 months. It's, it's truly unbelievable. Grieving the difference in like two different people Mm -hmm. and this like holding space for 
grief that looks and feels different for each person. Can you talk about that? Yes. So I will come clean and say that after my dad had died, I even turned to my therapist and said, well, at least it wasn't my mother because that I wouldn't be able to handle. And in that, I think there was recognizing that even though they're collectively like, right, my parents, so they're, they're part of this group, individually, my relationships with them were completely different, both positive ways, but the way I connected with them, the way I'm missing them, right? The part that they played in my everyday was different. And so the part that's missing from my everyday is different without them. And I think that I will say like wholeheartedly, like I feel guilty half the time when I say this stuff or when I feel it, because it feels uncomfortable. It's like, oh, well, they're both my parents. I should miss them, you know, equally or at least pay attention to one versus the other. But I've just had to kind of get over that. I don't have a better way of saying what it is other than talking myself out of it, of saying they were two different relationships. You're mourning two different things. And so those are going to play out in different ways. I think, you know, my dad is 50% of me just as much as my mom is 50% of me. But the 50% that he was is kind of like my business acumen and going to get it and to-do lists and checking things off that to-do list. And my mom was like, my person in terms of talking about like the shows we were watching or the, you know, foods we were eating or the clothes we were wearing and all of that. And so it was much more of a day-to-day touch base with her than it was my dad. And so I think for anyone who is going through grief, I always like to say like, it's okay to feel different about those losses. It doesn't have to be, you know, nothing about it is like fair or equal or even. Right. And I think that back to this concept of grief, just being love in a different format, it's like your love for each person is different. It's apples and oranges. So when you are grieving a loss, don't try to compare yourself to anyone else or anybody else's like style of grieving. Just lean into in the way that you can love a hundred different people in different ways. You can also grieve in a hundred different ways. Absolutely. And as I said, like every single relationship is completely unique and individual and even two people in the same relationship, right? They might have different relationships with that relationship, but ultimately like the grief you feel is universal. And that's where the connection comes in is not so much in like how you lived with that one other person or, you know, animal or job or whatever it might be that you're kind of grieving the loss or a marriage. I think that it's about like the loss that you feel on the other side. Yeah. And I also want to talk about the different milestones that you've celebrated in your life. You've had a hell of a past few years, you know, (laughs) no slowing down, (laughs) no slowing down. Rachel is a powerhouse. We actually met each other when I was still in the corporate world and she leads comms and PR for a major tech company. And so you, your day job is substantial and yet you still make time to create this community and this platform because it feels so deeply soul connected. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's like this outlet for you where you're really giving back from all the resources that you've benefited from. From, and also adding your own beautiful words and wisdom to each post. And sorry, that was just an aside for how amazing your page is. I was going to say, is there a question in there? Or- no. <laughs> that, that you was just want to keep the compliments coming by all means. <laughs> but, but the question in that is, I've watched you as your friend go through an engagement and a marriage coming up in your job in moving across the country and getting a dog and building your family. Like there have been so many of these milestones and I want to talk about the way in which you've traversed grief through each of them and giving yourself permission to grieve them in different ways at each of these junctions. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I'll add to that, um, I feel very fortunate that my brother, who is an addict, has also been clean and sober now for two and a half years in the midst of all of that as well. So that's been another piece of our little journey, or I guess a year and a half now. It's easy to lose track of time when you've had a couple of years like I have, um, or any of us in 2020, I would assume. But I think that Well, initially my now husband and I had tried to get married while my mom was still alive. So after my mom was diagnosed, I 
turned to my again now husband and said, okay, so now we're gonna have to get married. No more, no more sitting around waiting to, to make some fancy proposal. Cause I know that's how you're spending all of your time is just thinking about how you're going to propose. It Definitely put not everything what, into perspective, but it put everything. Yes. It put everything into perspective. We tried to get married before my mom died. She declined so quickly that it just didn't make sense to do something small. So we did end up getting married, um, six months later in a much larger wedding setting. And I mean, I wanted it to be over, right? Like I, I'm so happy to be married. I love my husband. I'm, you know, we're a true partnership. We met shortly before my dad even got sick. So he got to know my parents beforehand, which I feel incredibly fortunate about. But a lot of the things in life that are supposed to be these super sweet, exciting moments, all of a sudden have a real bittersweetness to them. And I think that's with becoming an adult at any point, but it's a little early in, in the lifespan to be experiencing things like the loss of both parents. So to me, obviously as any healthy relationship I would venture to say is right. The focus was on being married in that partnership together and not on the wedding itself. And as much as I had maybe at some point really cared about a lot of the details of the day, it got to a point where I didn't care as much because my mom had just died. And I was like, just again, like I want to look nice, but beyond that, like, I do not care. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I would so much rather be spending my time, like honestly, like weeping in a corner and thinking about my mom or even not weeping, but like thinking about happy memories about my mom. Like I didn't want to take up the brain space for anything else. I think in contrast, right. I think working was probably provided a little bit more of a positive balance in life. Right. So I think that work gave me something else to care about. It gave me something else to feel accomplished about. I think it's hard when you're going from being a primary caretaker for someone who's ill. And again, I did it for such a short window of time compared to people who take care of people for many, many years. And it's an incredible sacrifice and burden that you're making. You know, but that that is a format that makes you feel like you're doing, I mean, you're doing the most selfless work of all, right? It's like t- holding someone's hand through their death, whether that be changing their diaper, or feeding them or giving them their medicine or any sort of thing. And so work gave me something else to at least feel like I am contributing. It is not the same thing as like contributing to a life. Let me be very clear that I'm not doing brain surgery. I'm not doing anything of the sort, but it still felt like I was doing something and there was an outcome from it that was positive versus living life at any other point where there's just nothing else to kind of give for. But I think that balance happens over time. You know, I think if people have the opportunity to take a little time off from work, absolutely do that. But again, I just think there's some, there was some benefit for me personally to have something else to focus on and put energy into as long as I still carved out that space to like live in my grief too. I feel like you are such an interesting example because you as a human, before you entered into the grief and the loss of both parents, like you are a very function, high functioning person and you are a very ambitious person. So coming back to self for you, I feel like work was an outlet for that where it's like, whoa, I feel like myself again. Like, yes, I'm dealing with these enormous losses in my life, but like, I still have an outlet for my energy. And I'm curious if you can talk because you're so high functioning about a time (laughs) where like, I guess your marriage was an example of this where it's like, I get it. I could do this, but I'm not going to anymore. And I feel like I just want to hear from you as one of the most high functioning people I know, how did permission look like when you started to give yourself permission? Yeah, I think it's been (laughs) touch and go. Um, I'm learning. 
Like, I think that's something that I'm actively working on because I think there's a difference between me being able to do something and me wanting to do something. And oftentimes I'm able to, even if I'm in like the deepest, darkest depression hole, like I can still get it done. I can still show up to the thing I need to show up for, you know, especially with work stuff, like I can turn it on. But what I've come to realize is that that all comes at a cost. That's not free. I like to think of, you know, yourself as a battery. So I only have so much to expend. And so when you're grieving, you're, you're spending all of this, I mean, mental, physical, psychological, just energy on the loss that you're feeling in addition to just like getting up putting your shoes on, like walking out the door or in these times, walking to your desk, you know, across the room and and going to work. But I think that for me, it's been an exercise in protecting my energy, recognizing what is draining, what is additive, and then like being kind of ruthless at times about how I'm using that energy up. So whether that be saying no more often, whether that be giving myself the permission to, you know, take a nap over the weekend, like whatever that might look like. Amazing. And I think it's, it's just back to this theme of you are who you are and the loss that you're experiencing doesn't make you any different. So don't try to do anything that <laughs> the only thing I will say, I do think that I changed from being extroverted to introverted. Hmm. I think I'm now an extroverted introvert. So like I can like do it, turn it on, perform, be energetic, be social, be all that. But it kicks the shit out of me. Like I'm part of my French, but I am like in bed after that and like need three days of recuperation. So I do think I had maybe more of a, a tolerance for, for just being social for the sake of being social. But now that my energy is kind of limited, it feels like I have to be more protective of it in that way. And talk to me because somebody just commented same here. I feel like this is actually probably a fairly common experience when you're going through so much in your mind and in your heart that you can't give as much externally. How is your grief related to this feeling? Like, I don't want to actually just be out and about having surface level conversations. Like there's, there's so much more depth available in the same way that your wedding took on such a different tenor when your Mm -hmm. mom died, because you're like, all of this doesn't matter to me anymore. Like only this matters. Like, ex- like explain how that yeah, is. Yeah. And I want to, I want to caveat it with like, you're still allowed to have like silly times and funny moments and like light moments. I just think that the space you have to have that is smaller than it was before. Like I remember um, I had a group of close girlfriends who came out to San Francisco to visit. They were there for a couple of days and I remember feeling just like, okay, after dinner the first night, right? Like I'm able, I have the space to like, just be silly and talk about light things and not worry, you know, not talk about anything serious. And then by day two, I was like, are we still really talking about things that like aren't of substance? And again, these are people who I'm very close with and like, it's no judgment on them. It's just all of a sudden your life is put in a different perspective where like, that's all fun and games. And then we, you know, you kind of hit your limit a lot sooner. And so I've just found that being in group settings is difficult because you're trying to modulate energy for different people and it becomes tiring really quickly and you're less able to dictate the situation. So I found that one-on-one. So even if you're one-on-one and having silly conversation, if you're having a moment, right, you have the space within that conversation to say, Hey, like I, I'm going to pivot us to something a little more serious, but if it's a group of five people, you're not going to say like, Hey, four people who are like living and laughing it up right now. Like, let me bring you to a dark place with me. And again, maybe that's my own like shit that I need to be okay with doing, but I found that the group dynamic makes it difficult to control that situation and, and really seek out what you need. 
Totally. It's like you need to be in a safe enough space to be like, can we talk about this? I love what you're talking about where it's like, I want to like cry so hard that I laugh and then laugh so hard that I cry. And I want to be able to like oscillate between those two, this Mm -hmm. duality, like both can exist. I can be in deep, deep mourning. And also like, I know you, you love to dance where it's like, I want to break out into spontaneous dance potentially, or like eat some sour gummies or whatever silliness. Or even, you you know, on uh, my mom's anniversary this year, a group of girlfriends and I got together and we were just telling stories about my mom. And so some of them are like very, you know, touching, moving stories about things that she did or said that were really meaningful. And some of it were just like case studies of her personality that were, you know, special, uh, I'll put it that way. And so just being able to have conversation like that, where it goes the full gamut is so much more refreshing and fulfilling for me than I would say before I had more of a tolerance to just have the like light, fun conversations and, and leave it at that. And would your advice for somebody who's sort of like new in this grieving space, would it be to just have these candid conversations with people to give them a heads up? Like, hey, I'm going to come out tonight, but like there might be times where I'm going to need to go to this. Like, what would your advice be? Yeah. One, it's hard to imagine going out and doing anything right now. So I'm trying to remember what that felt like. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm going out. Where am I going? What am I wearing? I have to put on real clothes. So right now I'm wearing sweatpants with my outfit. So that's going to be a problem. <laughs> Um, but no I think that I think that you need to have like a buddy I always do this with my husband before the holidays or something like that right I'm like we have an alliance of like this is what's gonna I'm predicting right as as you go through it you get better and better about predicting what's gonna come up for you when and how and again you're not gonna get it 100% right all the time but you're gonna say I have a feeling that I'm probably going to be a little bit triggered by being in this situation I have a feeling that I'm probably gonna need to like be able to at least step away and get some space at some point I have a feeling that like I'm gonna feel like I need that I can have an out if I want one right? Like that's sometimes just the feeling of being trapped somewhere can honestly stir up a lot of that. And so for me, it's just been communicating, whether it be to a partner, whether it be to the friend, just having like a plan of attack. It actually honestly reminds me of for my brother, as he's rebuilding his life in sobriety and cleanliness, it's all about like forward thinking of like, what's the situation I'm going to be in? Who can I call? Who, like, what do I think, you know, what am I going to hold in my hand so that I don't feel awkward that I don't have a drink? What would I do in each of these situations? And then playing each of those out and thinking like, okay, I have an escape route, no matter what can help make you feel like, okay, like I can find myself in the situation. I can also find my way out of it rather than feel like, why the hell did I put myself here? I'm stuck. Mm-hmm. And I honestly feel like this is very universal advice for anybody who feels overwhelmed in social situations. And again, it feels silly to have this conversation when we're all very much stuck at home in quarantine. But I think when we're out, it, there's going to be this rush of you know social gatherings and being back in society again. And so I think that this advice is so I'd so also pertinent. say like it applies to Zoom fatigue too. Like you got to mm-hmm. know when it's like, I just cannot versus there are Zooms that are really nice. Google Hangouts or whatever, you know, house party, whatever app you're using these days. But I think, you know, social settings, whatever they look like, whether they be physical and in person or if they're virtual and, you know, through an app like this, like it, it all applies. Totally. And I guess it's a great segue into work because I watched you as we were working together and then the stories that I've heard thereafter, the courage that you showed in actually communicating with your coworkers, like, hey, this is what's going on. Like you had recently started this job when we started working together and then your mom passed away very shortly after. Can you talk about that experience and how you started to share? 
Yeah. So I will tell you that I always say I'm not going to get a new job because the last two jobs I've taken, my parents died within two weeks of me taking a new job. Thankfully, I have no parents left, so I don't actually have to worry about that. So, you know, I'm a free agent. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I can't help it. Um, But I think that I'm incredibly, 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 incredibly fortunate that both employers that I had at those two points in time were wonderful and knew just how much space to give me, but then also how much to ask in return when the time was right. I think no employer, no person is going to get it right a hundred percent of the time, but I would say both got it right 90% of the time, which is like well above average. And again, like that is something that I certainly do not take for granted. I've talked to a lot of people about what their experience was with transitioning back to work or things like that. And for me to have gotten that support, especially at a job, I'd only been there like two weeks, like literally two weeks at my job. And then my dad died, which we had known was coming at some point. And then my mom, it was two weeks into a new job. She got sick and I was home for seven weeks through her illness and then died shortly after. And like I was gone for three months. And that's a risk and an investment you take in a person. And I think as a manager now, right, I would always say that that's, if you've bought into someone and hired them because you believe in them, like that's what you should do. Like you wait for them to come out of that and help them every way you can. It's complicated. I don't, I don't know. I think that, what was the question? Now I don't even remember. (laughs) There's so much wrapped up in it. And that's why like, I could go in so many different directions here because really what you're talking about is this concept of being at work and also having all of this happening outside of work. And how do those two seemingly incongruous worlds merge? And you need to be the bridge between them. Like it's up to you how much you want to let people in. And I'm sure that it changed over time. Like at first I'm going to tell them this much. And yeah. And you know, what's interesting is I actually think that, but the one thing that we've been doing as, as my team at work is we do these weather checks at the beginning of our meetings to kind of be like, where are you at mentally? Right. Is it a cloudy day for you? Is it a sunny day for you? Is it foggy? Like, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Like, there's no separation between church and state anymore, right? You're, you're in your home life while you're at your work life. And so if there's something going on at home, there's no like, I'm walking out the door, I'm leaving it behind and I'll like check in on it later. It's all right in front of you. And so we as a team, I've made sure to make sure that we're all kind of talking about what's happening. And again, at people's comfort level, which is why we do it like as a weather check rather than like a diary entry about your personal life. But I think it's really important for people to say like, this is like, I'm half here today. I'm fully here today. I'm like doing my best and like want to be distracted versus like, I'm doing my best. But, like, I really would rather be paying attention to this other thing so I can just like solve it. And so figuring out that balance. And it's so beautiful because you've been able to take what has been a horrible thing that has happened to you. You did not choose this by any stretch, but you've used it as a way of like making your corner of the corporate world a better place and, and providing permission for people to share how they really are. Did you start that practice by sort of like laying the groundwork and saying like, this is what's going on with me. Like I'm dealing with great, like, do you tell them? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I, I, it's funny because I, I think back and I'm like, I don't think I was intentional about it. It's just kind of who I am. I feel very fortunate. Another thing that I feel fortunate about is that my mom struggled with depression and anxiety when I was growing up and talked very openly about it. We knew she went to a therapist. We knew she was medicated. I started seeing a therapist in high school. Again, these are incredible privileges that I had. And that was different than how she was raised. It was a direct response to how she was raised and deciding to handle it differently, which I admire. And as we get older, we realize how much harder it is to do the opposite of what your parents did, even though you had every intention of doing everything exactly the opposite. So I think I had a 
proclivity to just being more open and honest about it. And it felt so big that there was like, how do I even pretend to hide this? It's like, first, it's like my dad's dying of brain cancer and I'm 25 and I've never been through anything like this before. So it's again, like, how could I even not talk about that? And then when it was happening with my mom, it's like, I'm the primary caretaker. I don't have an ounce of extra energy to like do anything for anyone else, which includes like pretending that everything's okay. And then after the fact, I found that when you're honest about it, you have the opportunity for real connection with other people. I remember talking to one of our former coworkers for the first time and just kind of casually talking and mentioning that this had happened. And then he shared that like his dad had died. And then all of a sudden you have this, again, not that everyone should bond over trauma, but I think having that point of connection and having a real conversation with people is incredibly powerful. Yeah, I I just think that you were such a trailblazer, like not not of your choice, but like you know, like you. Seriously, I, I would pick to be any other kind of trailblazer. Totally. <laughs> like, please give me another option. <laughs> but like, I just have this very vivid image of you, like walking through the office, and you had two phones, and one of the phones was actually the phone where you were getting updates from your mother's doctor when she was, you know, very very sick. And so it sort of like created these opportunities. And I actually now want to segue into when you knew what tugged on your heart enough that you actually started a platform, this Instagram platform to talk about it. Yeah. So the first kind of place I went was to books after my parents died, after actually just my dad had died and found that lo and behold, there are people who can put into words things that I could never imagine putting it into words and more beautifully than I ever could. And more, you know, just like so eloquently, I mean, again, this is what writers do. So that should not come as a surprise, but for some reason in my head, it was shocking. (laughs) Was there a particular book that you were like, whoa? So my first book that I read related to grief was When Breath Becomes air by Paul Kalinthi, which was finished by his then wife, uh, Lucy. I finished reading it on an airplane. Do not ever really weirdly same. And I was sobbing, sobbing. Yeah. So now I say, don't ever read that book on an airplane. (laughs) I mean, unless you like want to cry on the airplane, like by all means, but I mean, I'm not getting on any airplanes anytime soon anyway. So I'll just find other places to cry. But um, (laughs) that book was an entry point for me into understanding that there was this whole conservatory of books that have incredible insight started taking pictures of all these different quotes that I had come across and things like that. And I was like, Hey, if these all resonate so heavily with me, I feel like I should be sharing them with other people who are going through similar experiences. So I started dabbling in Instagram. I had, I have always found that it's easy for me to express myself through writing. Didn't want to go like a full blog route. I thought that was overwhelming at the idea of creating so much content outside of my like life that I'm supposed to be operating within. Um, so turn to Instagram Decided to start it on the two-year anniversary of when my dad had died because, again, I was feeling all this stuff and had all these quotes, and I was like, I just got to do something with it. And the other main motivation was, again, as fortunate as I was to be in therapy, in therapy, you're working through some, like, big shit normally, right? Like, these are, like, the big pieces of trauma or heartache or grief that you're working through. Um, But when you're grieving, there's a ton of stuff that happens in a day that is maybe teeny tiny in comparison to the trauma that you're going through in therapy, but it still counts um, and it still deserves to be worked through. And so it would be things like walking down the street and seeing a family, like all holding hands and knowing like that wasn't going to be what my future looked like. It could be, you know, watching the latest episode of the housewives last night and wanting to text my mom to talk about it. Again, we have very high taste in my household. So if things like that, you know, it just felt I was sad. I wanted to process them. I wanted to like give them the space to like exist. And I also had a feeling that other people were experiencing them too. And so I've found that also a lot of time it's like people want to 
validate that they're not crazy. I will tell you, you're not crazy. Probably everything that you've experienced, like 99% of what you think was like, you're the first person to ever go go through it. Going to tell you it was completely normal. I mean, even like the physical manifestations of grief that can feel like, why is this happening? How is this happening? Like there's a million other people out there who are experiencing the same thing. Yeah. And as I, I actually want to kind of like go through the journey of, of what this was, because at first it was sort of like a collection of quotes. And I remember following you in early days, like a couple hundred <laughs> followers. I was like, this is so lovely, like a space on the internet where people can come like a coffee shop where it's like, bring whatever you're going through this day. Like, I, I love the weather forecast analogy because it's like, it could be sunny, cloudy, rainy, sleeting, like whatever it is, come here and like, you will be ac- accepted. And I know in your bio, it even says like, everyone accepted. Everyone's welcome here. And as you were like, sort of like posting and like sharing more of your story, when did you think that it would become a thing? Like, was there ever a point that you were like, I'll do this for a little bit until it gets old and you're still here two and a half years later? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely changed in the time that I've been doing it. I think I started out thinking that I needed to have, you know, I needed to create original artwork. I needed to plan out my posts. I needed to have an aesthetic. And that started to feel inauthentic, honestly. Like I I also came to discover that there was a lot of incredible content already being created and what I had to add. I think my my captions on them maybe are unique and individual, but the the words that were already out there, the artwork that was already out there was so incredible and powerful to me that it was more about like curating that content and having one place. I think I've had a number of people reach out and say like, this is the first page I've found around grief. And I love that because then that means I'm pointing them to like 14 other places to find resources too. Like the goal is not to be the be all end all like summary of grief and the experience, but rather to be a jumping off point for people or a connection point for others who are feeling kind of lost in the journey. And I realized that the type of information that everyone's consuming now is aggregated. So people love reading newsletters. They love reading Twitter. They love reading, you know, those sorts of sites that like collect everything in one place. And then I can click out and find each thing I need. And so I looked at it started looking at it through that lens of like, how can someone like start here and then find what they need for themselves? And whether that be someone who's experiencing parental loss and wants to dive more into that, someone who's experiencing maybe pregnancy loss or infertility and wants to go in that direction. Like there's an entry point for everyone there to to find their own community. And when you're grieving, you don't have any energy. So it's like, of course you would want this aggregated curated thing. So it's like, I only have to go to one spot. If I roll myself out of bed and have to do one thing today, I'm going to go to this one page and everything's there. I'm curious, like, since you've started the page, you're hearing all these stories of people. You, I know you have so many DMs that come in where people are like, finally, someone that's speaking my experience. That's what's so profound about what you're doing. What has been some of the most surprising things that you've learned about grief just from hearing other people's stories? It's a good question. Well, one to your, to what we were talking about earlier is the idea that anyone has had a similar experience, right? You start to think that what you're going through in such a, you know, tornado and you're in the eye of the storm and you think like, this is only happening to me, you start to realize it's a very collective experience. I feel very fortunate. I'm uh, Jewish by birth. And I had, I felt like my religion, regardless of how connected I was with like kind of the God element of it or the religious practices or anything like that, it does provide a structure around grief and loss and death and dying. And I found it surprising to have people reach out and really have this be like the only resource they had. There's no kind of religious structure. There's no infrastructure around like community in, you know, and I think 
that made me feel incredibly grateful for having a Jewish community that we lived in that really rallied around my family when we needed it the most, but also wanted to give, obviously like it's about paying that forward and giving other people a taste of what that could feel like. And so again, it was something that I felt, (laughs) I remember turning to the rabbi at the end of the morning period and being like, so I feel like I'm being like dropped in the middle of the woods and like, there's no rules for like what I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to be any of it. But I now reflect back on that. I was like, thank God I had guidance for the first like 30 days because otherwise I would have felt that way the day my parents died. And that that would have been awful. And that's Um, how so many people feel. So I want to like back up a few steps. Yes. For those of you who are not Jewish, my partner's Jewish, Rachel's Jewish, but very, you know, very small percentage of the population. We are a minority. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like you to explain. It's actually so beautiful the way that the, the Jewish faith treats someone passing away a loved one passing away so like talk us through the the traditions and the rituals that happen from from the moment someone passes away yeah and i will speak as i am not a rabbi i'm not a religious expert i'll tell you from my personal experience how we went through it and what i the practices that we observe but there's absolutely no right or wrong on any of this but for us there's i mean there's tradition from the time someone is dying through a year and 50 years after their death. And that involved things like how you treat the person who's deceased and their body. So you don't stay with the body for long after the person has died, but there is someone who stays with the body the entire time before the person's buried. Traditionally, people are buried in cemeteries. The idea is kind of from dust to dust, putting them back into the earth. And you try to do that as quickly as possible after someone dies. The funeral is actually usually within 24 hours of when the person dies because their soul is kind of stuck in this limbo is the idea. And so you're trying to take, you know, they're, they're a living soul and then they're like in this limbo and then you're trying to get them like into the next phase of their lives. And so from that time, you know, it's a very quick, quick turn for people who aren't used to it of having the funeral. Um, You know, there's the eulogy process, like you would see at many other funerals and the whole focus from the time until from the time the person dies until the person is buried is completely on the person who has passed. So you're completely focused on what that person needs, the attention, getting everything squared away, all of that. The second that person is in the ground covered, the full community's attention is on the mourners. So the immediate family, we rip our clothing to show that we're in mourning. So it's like a visible outward sign. Personally, like didn't shower for seven days, didn't wear shoes for seven days. You're just kind of confined to your home, which in coronavirus times is what we are all doing. (laughs) Um, And you do what's called sitting Shiva. So it lasts for seven days. Shiva comes, the root of the word is seven and sitting. And so you're sitting for seven days in your home. People come and visit, people feed you. Like you truly just don't think about a thing. We covered all the mirrors in our home. So you're really not focusing on your outward experience. Mm. You're not supposed to like answer the phone or anything. Like you don't greet anyone because you're allowed to just kind of launch into conversation. It's not about kind of being performative. And so that's a period of seven days. And then there's different combinations of things of if there's a 30 day period after the person has died a year long where you're saying a mourner's prayer either every day, depending on your practice for that full year of what's called the yard site. That's the year, the day, the anniversary every year on the Hebrew calendar of when that person died. And you light a candle to commemorate that Mm. every year. I kind of want to go back to this concept of like, it's okay to be disheveled in the Jewish tradition. It's like, it's okay for you You, to rip your clothes, (laughs) do not shower, don't answer the phone, don't look in the mirror. This feeling that we don't have much space for in society is actually like honored and exalted in the Jewish 
faith, which I think is so beautiful, where it's like, we get something extremely traumatic and intense just happened. We do not expect you, nor should you do anything right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's no focus on anything else. And that's not to say that you should only be sitting there and crying and mourning, but it's that this is your space and like do with it what you want, but please don't worry about like how your hair looks or like how you're showing up for people or anything like that. And so again, it's, it's jarring at the end of the seven days when you're like, okay, so now I'm supposed to just go back into society because it does feel like the world is suspended during that time of like, you're not paying attention to the things that are happening in the outside world and the sun is still shining and people are still going to work. You're just like, I'm living here in this universe. And honestly, it is so draining of an experience to have people coming in and out of your house for those seven days. But then all of a sudden you're at the end of seven days and you're like, oh, I've lived for seven days after this person died. Like I've survived for a week after this person died. And that's incredibly powerful and empowering. Again, doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't solve any of your long-term problems, but it can be a lot just to get through that initial hump. Mm -hmm. And that initial hump, it's like this understanding of the, that you can't do it alone. And I actually want to come to this idea of like, as an ally, if you will, or mm -hmm. a friend of someone who has lost someone and you yourself have not lost someone. I feel like people often can feel at a loss, no pun intended, about what to say and what to do and how to show up. And so it's amazing that there's sort of like a structure in place in the Jewish faith. Like you expect your community and your community shows up with food and being like, just sit and we are going to do things. But in the absence of that, if if you're not Jewish, what advice would you give to somebody who is a friend of someone who is in mourning and what not to do as well? I think that's very important. Yeah. Well, I can come up with the what not to do list very quickly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately that comes quicker. Um, and that's, but that's kind of the point, right? It's like, as even as someone who's gone through the experiences I've had, I still panic when I'm like, oh my God, I need to like text this person because they just experienced this loss and I need to show up for them or whatever combinations of things it might be. I think that be the person who runs to rather than runs from the situation and then just hold space. And like, sometimes holding space can be like, I'm just, like, don't put your shit on other people. Like, that's just what the person doesn't need is just the space to decide. Like maybe right now they're looking to like talk about the pain that they're in. Maybe right now they're talking, they want to talk about a funny story they have about that person. Or maybe they want to talk about something that is like completely unrelated just to distract themselves for a little bit, whatever it is, just be there. I think the other advice that I give people is to think about what your strong suits are and what your contribution, unique contribution can be. Um, I'll give like a very silly example, but I had a girlfriend who had just had a baby. I offered to like be a night nurse for the night, help her out. But I also, I love painting nails. So I brought over like stuff to do like a foot massage and a pedicure. And it's like, again, like, yes, I could like go out of my way to like make her a gourmet meal, but like there are so many people that are offering to break, bring her meals, like, which is great. And also like, that's what they're good at. Like I should take the thing that I'm good at and bring joy in the way that I can authentically bring it. And so everyone can think about like what their thing is, is like, what's something that you can bring to the table to like really connect with that person on. Um, I had a girlfriend who we would do weekly, like sheet masks together while my mom was sick. Right. Like that was how we, it wasn't about it. It doesn't always have to be so like serious and heavy, but more so about just creating that space. And in the same way that you're supposed to grieve the way that you want to grieve, you should show your support in the way that it feels authentic and natural for you to show support. Like so yes, many people send to the flowers. Extent, right. But to the extent that you don't put it on someone else of how they should be feeling. So mm, explain that a little bit. Yeah. I think that again, like the point of empathy is to understand how someone else could or may be feeling um, and allowing them to feel that however they do 
rather than saying, oh, if I were in your shoes, I would feel this way. So let me assume that you feel this way too. And then let's work from that place. Mm. Like that is not helpful. And it often feels uncomfortable and like wrong, right? Because each person deals with it in their own way. And so it's just really about bringing yourself authentically to like listen, but not to put on a prediction or an assumption about how the other person feels. I wonder if then the small tweak is you're going to show up with sheet masks, potentially. You're going to first just show up authentically and say, Mm -hmm. I'm here to listen. I want to hold space however it feels right. I was thinking maybe bringing over sheet masks tonight. Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, absolutely. And then also like week to week, that might change, right? So it's like, hey, I was thinking of doing that again. Like, are you up for it? Or are you in the mood for something a little different, right? Like grief is a goddamn roller coaster at times. And so every moment in time is going to be different. I think it's the other reason that I really encourage people to say, how are you today? Or how are you right now? Rather than saying, how are you? When you're in the depths of grief, within an hour, I am experiencing literally every emotion that I've ever experienced in my entire life. So to ask me like, how are you? I'm like, I, where do I begin to define that for you? So by asking like, how are you right now? Or how are you today? You can kind of hone in on like, what is the primary thing that, that is on my heart and in my mind right now to start a conversation rather than like another like decision paralysis from needing to like answer questions. I want to open the floor for anybody who, for those of you who are still here, there has been a very active chat and we're very happy that you're here. Yes. And we want you to ask, like, if you're in the midst of this right now, like, what are your questions for Rachel? And really go there, like, really, like, ask whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah. I was just going to say also for the people who are trying to show up for other people in their lives, you know, this is not exclusionary in in any sort of way. It looks like we have one question. I'm going to try and see if I Meet you at Disney asks, how does your husband support you during your really low points? My husband struggles to know how to be there even after I explained to him what I need. I don't believe my husband is tuned into this live right now. So I will be (laughs) completely blunt and honest. (laughs) Even if he was, I would be honest, but it's a work in progress. Like it is a process. I think I try to be understanding of the fact that like he started dating me when we were 25 and, um, thank God two very healthy (laughs) living parents, um, and then he signed up for this roller coaster ride that was, you know, the next four years. And I think that I always admire the fact that that was a choice he made and continued to commit to. Whereas like my life was not my choice, but like I had to deal with it. My parents were dying. Like he decided to stay, stay along for that. And I think that when I anchor it in that, I can have a little more appreciation and patience. But again, like I said earlier, I'm all about preparation of like setting expectations and really like vocalizing them of like, I expect this to be hard for me so that this doesn't, doesn't like surprise you. Um, And I see you're saying like he had gone through his own loss, but handles it differently. Like, yeah, we're all different people. We're all, especially, I'm not going to say that there's, you know, gendered rules about it, but I do think, you know, we, we are cultured and cultivated in a way that sometimes men and women handle grief differently based on kind of how they were raised and taught to express emotions. And I think that it's not that you need to like uncondition your partner, but just have them understand where you're coming from, what you're experiencing. And the thing I always say is like, also there's going to be times where you lash out and lose it. And like, it doesn't go as planned. I would say still apologize afterward, but also like take that moment to explain what you were going through and providing the context just so they can understand where you're coming from. Again, you don't need to do that in the moment. We're all going to have it, but I think there's a lot of power in taking a moment afterward to just say like, here's why I reacted the way I did. 
this is what it feels like. I could imagine other situations like X, Y, and Z would leave me feeling the same way or something like that. I think one of the last questions that I have, I actually want to bring it back to one of the Jewish traditions of lighting a candle, a yartzeit candle, every year on the anniversary of the person's death, actually for 24 hours, a full 24, I think 24 hours, yeah? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I'm not Jewish, but <laughs> I am an ally. Close <laughs> proximity, yeah. <laughs> I remember, actually, this is just a funny anecdote that I was at the grocery store last year on Hanukkah, and I saw a Yartzeit candle, but I didn't know what it was, and I brought it back. It was in the Hanukkah section, so I was like, oh, here, <laughs> like, Scott, my partner, like, I got you this candle. He's like, that's yeah. not like, <laughs> that's for when people die. I was like, oh, got it. But I think it's such a beautiful tradition where it's like, on this day, every single year, it doesn't matter how many years have passed, we're going to remember you. And I'm curious, Rachel, especially as we approach the holidays, like what are some of the ways, if grief is love with nowhere to go, that you've been able, like, what are some of the beautiful ways that you've created outlets for this love? It's a good question. And actually, Marielle just sent a a question about other friends not necessarily bringing them up. And so I think it actually, it all ties together. Just in the, the question I answered before about like, Talking about death does not make it more contagious. It doesn't mean that you're more likely to die or someone you know is going to die. Like, that's literally not how this works. I can tell you, not a doctor, but the two things guaranteed in life are death and taxes. So like, (laughs) no news shock there. Let's, Let's start there with everyone's going to die. So it's actually not shocking when someone does. But putting that aside and also thinking about like, I think other people are scared. They're scared that like you, that you don't want to talk about it. You're not already thinking about it. And I'm here to say like, it's already top of mind, like, right? Like I am constantly, whether I'm not like consciously thinking about it, but I am always thinking about the fact that my parents are dead, that I miss them, that there's something I want to tell them, that there's something I want to do together. There's some memory that I'm thinking of or something in the future that I'm realizing they won't be there for. That is all very real. And so I think that you do yourself, it's a lot of work. And so I I hate that I'm going to say that like the labor's on the individual who's grieving to do it. But I do think that there's a lot of power in just starting to talk about it. And I know I've had conversations with people who like in the early days, that feels like an incredible mountain to climb of like being able to tell the story without breaking down sobbing. And I will tell you that with practice, it gets not easier, but just like you don't cry. Um, and I so think much pent up maybe. Yeah. And I think you're giving a voice to it. I think it helps a lot to just talk about it, like talk about these people, keep their memories alive. I think that all we want to know is that they are still with us and, and memorable and, and connecting each other, even after their death, because they're still a core part of, especially like parents or a sibling or something like that. Like you share DNA with these people. So someone else who didn't know them, but is talking to you is still talking to your parents in some, some form of both DNA and like upbringing and all of that. And so yeah, I guess just talk about it and like, just try, like try a little bit, see how it feels. If that doesn't feel right, like try it talking about it with someone else in a slightly different way. And you'll find a way to bring a voice to your story. And I also think it sets the expectation for other people that you're comfortable doing it. Again, I, I hate that we have to be the ones to normalize it for everyone else, but that is the, especially in America where like grief and death is like the most taboo thing on the entire planet. And honestly, the year that we've had makes it actually more top of mind and comfortable for people to talk about than it's ever been before. I think that just try and put your voice to it in any way you can as often as you can and see how that feels. And would you also give people permission to share the happy memories where it's like, Oh yes. This is not me saying you should sit around being like, did you know that my parents died of brain cancer 14 months apart? Do you feel bad for me now? Or how about that? 
<laughs> that's not it. I'm just saying like there is experience that you've had. It is core to your being. And that's just part of who you are now. And so like use that as part of your story. Yes. And you can go to a friend and be like, Hey, I want to talk about my mom for a second. Like, you know, there's this video that I'm thinking of, of your mom in some like beauty store with the Ulta. hair dryer. It was an Ulta. Yes. She went to Ulta. She wanted to try out the hair dryers. <laughs> Wasn't embarrassing at all being around her. See, these are the things that you forget that it was also embarrassing to be around her. It's good to remember <laughs> that it wasn't all perfect. And I think I, I want to give people permission to grieve in a way that's like, like cry, like allow that to come through, like greet, like fully mourn. And it's like a wave where it's going to crash and it's going to be 90 seconds. Like you're on the ground and then you're going to just start laughing about some memory about them. Like, can you corroborate that? Like, is that what happens? Do you feel like it comes in these like, <laughs> Oh, it goes. Yeah. It's, it's in every direction at all times. Like it's just everything. Like that's how, I mean, the relationships themselves, right. Permeate everything. So it makes sense that the memories and the experience of going through the, the love that you've lost from them also kind of comes through as, as one of everything too. Yeah. And as you're going into the holiday season, well, I guess it has been the holiday season. I was going to say, as in, we're kind of, we yeah. kind of closed that out. But yeah. I, I literally, as I was <laughs> okay. saying that, I was like in the high holidays or in September, I celebrated those this we, year. We just ended all of our, <laughs> our holiday stretch until Passover. But. <laughs> Maybe New Year's. I don't know. But I guess like, can you talk about traditions and like rebuilding those things yeah. after the loss? Well, and someone? I will tell you, actually, New Year's is a big trigger for me. I hate New Year's now because I feel like this whole, whole idea of like New Year, it's a fresh start. Like you can start it all over. I think after, even just after my dad had died was, I mean, offensive in a lot of ways, right? It's like, you don't get to just like leave behind everything from the previous year and like start new. Like my dad will still be dead. Now it's like my mom and my dad will still be dead. Like my brother's still struggling with addiction. So I think that, you know, there's no, there's no easy out, like just turning the calendar to January one like that. But I do think my biggest thing that I, again, I alluded to of just kind of this preparation work that it takes for the holidays. So things like Thanksgiving, um, I do a lot to like work through the pent up anxiety I have approaching those holidays. So I'll like think about like, how's it going to feel to be there with, you know, my in-laws and my entire extended family and knowing that my parents aren't part of this. How am I going to feel like sitting down to dinner? How am I, and actually experiencing those emotions as I predict they're going to feel. I've often found that by the time I get to the holiday celebration, whatever it may look like itself, I have already worked through it. And so then I'm able to just kind of like breathe on that day, which is honestly all I could ask for. It's not that I need New Year's to be like the happiest day of my life. It's not that I need, I'll say for Hanukkah, right? Like to be like this a total celebration, but I do need to be able to just like function. And I do feel like that, that gives me the space to do that. The other thing I'll say is some people feel really strongly about replicating the traditions that they had with their loved one that may have passed away. Um, some people feel like they want to leave that behind and, you know, kind of create their own traditions. I would say that there's somewhere in the middle where you can create, you know, maybe it's taking the core idea of the tradition, but making it your own. All of that is completely on the table. Is there an example of one that you could share that you have had fun with, or it's like a very special thing, or if it's maybe just even the yard site candle where like you honor that time? Yeah, we weren't a big like holiday. That's the other thing is I, I should disclaim that like we weren't a big holiday celebration family. I think my dad, when I was growing up, my dad had commuted for work a lot. And so anytime we didn't like take big family vacations or be with our extended family for holidays, it was often just like it meant my dad was home. And so we were together, all four of us as a family together. And so my idea of like holiday celebration is actually 
pretty like simplistic. I do think I've heard of other people who, you know, leave an empty seat at the table to represent the person who is missing. If there's a favorite dish, people chip in together to like make that together, watching a favorite movie or, you know, telling stories. All of that is some examples. Amazing. And as you get older, you were alluding to this, but like you're half your mom, you're half your dad. And as you get older, the things that you tried so hard to fight against are just like, we become our parents. That's just what happens. Really? As I sit here from a house in the like two suburbs over from where I grew up that I said I was never coming back to. Yes, that is. And here you are. Turns out it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Like, do you ever catch yourself in the mirror making an expression that your mom would make or like making your to-do list in a way that your dad would make? Like, does that bring you back with them? the thing that I have noticed lately is that my mom always would choke on things like swallowing water and it would just go down the wrong way or like eating salad dressing and then she would like cough like a maniac and now I'm doing that and I'm like I used to be so angry every time she did that like how do I be angry at myself but how do I just stop doing this like what is happening like is this just like when you get ready to be a mom like you just start choking and coughing like I don't know but I don't like it um, your windpipe so just, got smaller as yeah, you I don't age. know but I'm just like angry at myself now because I would be angry at her for doing it and it just feels like that's poetic justice right there. Yes, there's this beautiful full circle where it's like, wow, now as I get older, I can actually like fully lean into all of these things because it's like, whoa, little pieces of them are still with me. They're within me. Yes, yeah. And And especially parents or right, that shared DNA is something that's undeniable, I think, for people who lose spouses or or friends or things like, you know, any, I mean, anyone else who's not family, it can be, it's a different, bodily experience where absolutely that person is still a core part of your being and intertwined, but there's somebody to be said for that, like biological connection. And I think as we like near the end of this live, I just want to acknowledge the tenor of 2020 is pretty wild and intense. We're like wrapping up this very intense year where people have experienced some semblance of grief on a lot of like micro, like on a micro level, you know, they might not have lost a loved one, but they're, they're grieving the way that things used to work that no longer work anymore. And I'm curious if you have like anything that's top of heart for you. I say top of like top of my top, say of, top heart. of heart. That's cute. <laughs> that's what I do at work. But as we enter 2021, in terms of shifting into a new paradigm of the way that we grieve. I just think it means like more stuff can be on the table. Like this is an invitation to be your full self, to not pretend that it's not present because repressing it, guess what, only makes it stronger and fight harder and then more painful when it comes out. And by the way, it won't go away until it comes out. So just, Mm. just, you know, make that choice consciously. And again, that's not to say that there aren't times that I choose to not give in to, it's not a choice, I guess, to give in, but like, there are times where I can say, I don't have time to take this on right now. Like I need to get through this work project. I need to execute this one thing. Like I just need to put that aside and I'm going to take the risk of it coming up at the wrong time, just because this is absolutely what has to get done first. But hopefully I have time and space to honor that a little bit later today or tomorrow, you know, whatever it might be to hold the space for it. But I think that that's just the tenor of today, which is like, it's all on the table. Like there's no, there's no division between our work life and our personal life. And I mean, your office computer and your personal laptop to watch Netflix at night is the same device too, right? Like it's all, it's all just mushed together. And I think the best thing you can do for yourself is create little spaces where you can of distinguishing those things, keeping things sacred that are supposed to be sacred. I've even been talking to my therapist about like lighting a candle when we're going into therapy and maybe spraying some like incense or something like that, just to like feel differentiated. But I think it's a feeling all of a sudden, I think 
globally people can understand grief whether they've been through a significant loss or not and that's incredibly powerful and unifying um and makes it a more honest conversation between us as people Mm, it's incredible like the empathy on our planet is definitely up leveling this year because we're all in this together we are all fighting a global enemy and going through a global crisis and so allow your give yourself permission to be in crisis and i think you know, to the anecdote that you shared earlier, Rachel, of you sharing your example of your parent passing away. And then you're, you know, the, the coworker that you were talking about being like, yeah, my mom passed away earlier this year. Like you have no idea what portal you were, you will open. Like, it's not just yes. about you opening up this grief for yourself. You're going to open up that honesty with so many people and so many different, like you're going to affect your network. And so it's so much bigger than yeah. just you. And Rachel knows this so well because she's created this platform that has, you know, tens of thousands of followers now. But I think that it's so important that like don't feel selfish if you're taking up space being like I'm talking openly and honestly about my grief you have no idea the types of people who are going to see that and hear that and then come to you and be like thank you so much for being so open like this is what's been on my heart absolutely yeah no I couldn't agree more I think again like the people who are putting content out in the grief community I think absolutely like there's some benefit well not tell you there's no selfish benefit to myself to just like getting it off my chest but obviously like the dividends it plays um in creating support and and entry points for conversation among different people is is everything yes i think ironically as we're all like home and alone i think as we enter 2021 i want to say like let's end suffering alone we don't have Mm -hmm. to be isolated and as frustrating and annoying as social media can be it's such a beautiful platform that can also connect ourselves so come to rachel's page if you feel alone like don't the only thing i'll say okay the one caveat is that it's wonderful that everyone's so connected it can be overwhelming at times i will tell you that the best invention was the emoji you can (laughs) respond to someone you can acknowledge it all you have to do is press a little heart and you have acknowledged you have thanked check, come back to it later and like reflect on it and say more if you want to. But again, I remember just after my dad had died and after like, I was grateful to emojis, like all of my gratitude to the emoji system. And now like you can actually like heart somebody's replies. Specific things, right? Yes, exactly. Like no longer just red, like red, acknowledge, like (laughs) no more energy, close it. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And giving yourself time away from these things, these, these scroll, endless scrolling, like get outside. I know that it's winter in many parts of the country right now, but like take a snowy walk outside. Mm -hmm. I know that's what I'm going to be doing after this conversation. (laughs) Any last pearls of wisdom? I don't know. We're all just doing our best. Like that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. I think 99% of people are just doing their best. And in in that moment in time, right? It doesn't mean it's their best work of all time, but they're doing their best. They're showing up in the best way they can. They're connecting with you the best way they can. They're just like, everyone's trying. And I think that you just need to appreciate, not, I don't like saying you need to. I work to appreciate how people are showing up, even if it's not right for me in that moment, but just that they have and what that means. And also knowing how I can pay that forward in the right ways in the right time and being very, very patient about it for both yourself and for others. I think this like assignment, if I, if I were to like encapsulate one thing out of this conversation, it's like go forth during your holidays, during whatever it is that you're going to do over the next few weeks and have the courage to ask people like, no, how are you really? What's yes. your weather forecast today? I think well, that and just practice- be kind to yourself, like be kind, be as kind to yourself as you would be to others. Love it. Simple. Like so imagine telling, right. Imagine telling your story to someone, your story, someone else telling that, telling you their story and how you would feel. 
you should be giving yourself that same latitude and, 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 um, I mean, permission. patience and per yeah, permission. Exactly. Amazing. Rachel, this was such a treat. Seriously. I heard nuggets of your story that I had never heard before. And I hope really? that everybody yeah. who watched got something out of this because, you know, it's a ripple effect. So whether you personally have lost someone or, you know, somebody close to you that has, let's, make grief more acceptable. It's such a normal part of the spectrum of human emotions. And I know that Rachel is on such a sacred mission to make this palatable and approachable and accessible for so many people in the world. Thank you, Nadia, for having me. It's an honor and a privilege. <laughs> all right. I love you, Rachel. And oh, I love I all of you it. who joined. I know you did. I felt it. <laughs> all right. Bye, y'all. Much love.